This is New America Now, dispatches from the new majority. I'm Shireen Sadegi. Coming up, why your government manufactures hysteria. I think the reason for it is to control the population, to keep the tendency to dissent down to a minimum. The new graphic novel about the 2009 Iranian elections. So it's real. And we can either choose to see it in all its horror and difficulty, or we can choose to ignore it. I choose to see it. And the horrifying things in jars found in Vietnam. They're fetuses uh, that were born with missing heads, missing arms, Siamese twins uh, sort of fused together. All that and more coming up on New America Now. America is a melting pot, a coming together of different peoples from different countries, religions, ethnicities, and ideologies. It began with immigration, and it moves forward with it. But it's never been easy being different in America. Author Jay Feldman's new book takes a look at how difficult it has been for every kind of American minority that you can imagine. His book is called Manufacturing Hysteria, a history of scapegoating, surveillance, and secrecy in modern America. And he joins us today to tell us what he has learned. Jay, welcome to New America Now. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. So tell us what your new book is about. Manufacturing Hysteria is about the scapegoating of minorities in times of crisis, usually by the government, and the ensuing hysteria that is uh, generated by that scapegoating, which includes widespread surveillance of the civilian population uh, and is used as the justification for a larger crackdown on civil liberties and a suppression of dissent. And it's a pattern that we see enacted time and time again, starting with the run-up to America's entry into World War I and uh, forward through the 20th century and now into the 21st century. I want to get back to that run-up to World War I because it's such a huge part of your book and the history of scapegoating and surveillance in America. But I want to get back to the, something you just mentioned, which is that this is something the government does. And why would the U.S. government be interested in scapegoating minorities? Well, first of all, let me say that this is not the only place that such things happen. These things happen everywhere. But as an American, I'm most interested in the history of it here. And as Americans, we've always been taught that we should hold ourselves to a higher standard. I think the reason for it is to control the population, to keep the tendency to dissent down to a minimum, to uh, minimize the dissenting voices who would question, for example, war or the scapegoating of what group shall we mention? Any group, and that's a good question. I mean, what is a minority? Who are the groups that historically have been targeted in this type of framework? And and who who are the groups that are currently today still being targeted? Well, when we speak of minorities, they can be ethnic or racial. They can also be political or religious. They can also be sexual minorities. During the Cold War era, 
5,000 homosexuals lost their jobs in the federal government because they were supposedly uh, security risks. So when we think of it in terms of World War I, it started with um, scapegoating of Germans and German-Americans, but it quickly widened to include uh, socialists, pacifists, industrial workers of the world, wobblies, anarchists, Mennonites, Irish-Americans. Then after the war, we saw, it, we saw the spotlight redirected towards leftists during the Red Scare uh, of 1919 and 1920. During the Depression, it was Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. Uh, during World War II, it was... Everybody knows about the Japanese-American internment, but what's largely forgotten is that German, Italian, and Japanese nationals, aliens, were also interned uh, in this country. Over 8,000 Germans, more than 3,000 Italians. So that carries on through World War II, and then after World War II, the Cold War and the concentration on communists. There was also Operation Wetback, which was a replay of the deportation of Mexicans during the Depression. And so today we're seeing the spotlight on Arab and Muslim Americans, and for the third time, the anti-immigration movement uh, directed towards immigration from Latin America. And the, the rhetoric that we hear is always the same. It's always, if you're not for us, you're against us, and if you're against us, you must be for them, whoever the them of the moment is. The whole, the whole rhetoric of the other, essentially. Yeah. Yes, yes. So you've just given us a pretty long list of American immigrants, many of whom are now Americans for generations, who had to suffer through this. I mean, is that just the way the, the pot melts in America? Is it simply a rite of passage, a necessity that every new American suffer and then overcome a campaign of hatred against them? I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but I guess you could make that argument. I guess you could make uh, the case that in order to become fully American, you have to first go through the crucible of being accused of disloyalty. The 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 premise being that no matter how long you've been in this country, you will maintain ties to your earlier culture and therefore a loyalty to that culture in some form or other. And therefore, you are suspect. What does it mean to be American? What does the government want from a resident or citizen of this country so that they will not be scapegoated, they will not be targeted in this way? Well, I don't know it's, if it's specifically anything from, but I know the government does not like dissent uh, in any form. And I think the concern, as much as it is against immigrant populations and the other groups that I've mentioned, is the questioning of government policy so that after 9-11... We've also seen surveillance of anti-globalization, the anti-globalization movement. So it seems that has to do with uh, limiting dissent and criticism of government policies. 
So in the beginning of our discussion, you mentioned World War I and what happened with George Creel and his now infamous Creel Commission. Can Noam Chomsky and, uh, and Howard Zinn and, and now you and many others have, have made reference to the... Committee on Public Information. Yeah, to the significance of the Committee on Public Information. Can you tell us about what it was and, and what it did? It was a did? propaganda agency. It was established by Woodrow Wilson as a new arm of the government. And they put out uh, pamphlets. They published pamphlets. They, they produced movies. They put up roadside advertising. And the, the purpose, the expressed purpose, it wasn't even hidden, was to create a hatred of Germany and, and all things German, which included German-Americans. And the press was complicit so that the New York Herald, for example, published a list of all German aliens, alien enemies by that time, after the United States got into the war, a list of all alien enemies living in New York City, complete with their addresses. And this took a, a month to appear in the paper over the course of a month. I mean, Germans at that time were the largest ethnic minority in the United States. Later, they still are, actually. I mean, uh, uh, the German-American institutes will tell you that uh, approximately 40% of all Americans have approximately 25% German ancestry. Yeah, it's not surprising. So yeah. they're, they're, it's not, they're just not being targeted anymore, but they were back then with the Creel Commission. Yes. What's, what's interesting is that, as you mentioned in your book, the, the Creel Commission was assigned the task of, quote, selling the war to an initially skeptical citizenry. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, the United States public was not in favor of getting involved in World War I. I mean, uh, this was a whole ocean away. This was in, in, in the days when crossing the ocean was, was, was a large proposition. Uh, it wasn't when you could just hop on an airplane and come on over here. And so the government had to create the uh, impression that America was in danger. Uh, a large part of it was the arms manufacturers who stood to, let, to make quite a, lo a lot of money during the uh, war. J.P. Morgan lent vast sums of money to the Allied uh, countries. And so the Committee on Public Information, the Creel Committee, was responsible for, they were invested with the responsibility for turning the public around. And one of the, th one of the ways that it was done was to create the impression that there were spies, German spies under every rock and that espionage was um, about to happen in every neighborhood in the United States. And it was, they were very successful at doing that. And then the, um, the focus was widened to create the same type of animosity towards all other dissenting groups, the ones that I mentioned earlier, pacifists, socialists, wobblies, anarchists, Mennonites and Irish Americans. Is there a Creel Commission today? <laughs> well, the the media certainly plays a cheerleading role for that. That's a that's a good question, and um, I would have to think carefully and about it. Uh, and speak softly. <laughs> <laughs> what is the media doing today? 
you're sort of suggesting that it's maybe a partner in in government crackdowns on dissent. The media, the mainstream media, has always been complicit in the crackdown on dissent and the creation, the scapegoating, and the creation of hysteria. Wherever you, whenever you look at the history, the government couldn't do it alone if they didn't have the cooperation of the mainstream media. Of the purveyors of mass information. Yes. Information or misinformation, as the case may be. Indeed. How do you see this playing out in the future? Do you think this will ever end? Well, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't really say. But I think, you know, the, the one possibility we have of changing this pattern is, first of all, simply by becoming aware of it uh, and asking ourselves, is this really the best way to behave? And I'll give you just one quick example. that the um, During the Depression, more than half a, between half a million and a million Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were either deported or, quote, voluntarily repatriated to Mexico. Many of these people were had been in this country for decades and had entered the country when there were no penalties for crossing the border without uh, a passport. There was no border enforcement. They didn't become citizens because of the language barrier, but they were nevertheless productive members of society. Uh, they were rounded up and sent back to Mexico, uh, including many citizens, Mexican-American citizens, who were born in this country or had become naturalized. Fast forward 20 years to Operation Wetback during the uh, Eisenhower administration, 1954. In six months, they managed to round up the same half million people and send them home uh, to Mexico. And now we're seeing it for the third time. And you really have to ask yourself, in no other terms, is this an effective policy? Does it work? It doesn't seem to because it here we are doing it for for the third time. And in fact, the Justice Department just a couple of weeks ago said they were going to review 300,000 deportation cases of, of Mexican and other Latinos. And they were going to concentrate on the individuals with criminal records. Well, that's a policy that makes sense to me. But just this wanton uh, rounding up and shipping back to Mexico... That's something that doesn't make sense to me. Jay Feldman, thank you so much for joining us today. A wonderfully researched book. Well, thank you. It's uh, been my pleasure. Author Jay Feldman's new book is Manufacturing Hysteria, a history of scapegoating, surveillance, and secrecy in modern America. to New America Now. If you'd like to hear more from this guest, visit us online at newamericanow.org. Iran. In one word, it elicits the highs and lows of reactions. It is a complex country with a complex people, and it has been a mainstay of American news for a good 32 years and counting now. 
But news coverage of Iran with its special interests and foreign policy implications does not provide the whole picture. Zahra's Paradise is a refreshing change to all that. It is a graphic novel written by two young men, known only as Amir and Khalil, which chronicles the fictionalized story of a young Iranian protester who went missing after the June 2009 presidential elections. And it is not afraid to point out the good and the bad in many of the most important players in recent Iranian history. Joining us today is the author, Amir. Amir, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So tell us what your book is all about. Uh, Zahra's Paradise is the story of Mehdi, a protester who vanishes after the Iranian presidential elections. Uh, if you recall, more than three million Iranians poured into the streets of Tehran after the election results were announced. In 2009. Uh, in 2009. And they go, you know, chanting, where is my vote? Um, soon after, there followed a crackdown. And um, a, lot of the, a lot of people just vanished. And um, for those of us in America who were following what was going on in Iran, it was very painful because we knew, I kind of knew what's going to be happening to them. And I felt it's important to show that. And so I was watching a YouTube video and I saw the images of another Iranian mother going to Zahra's Paradise, which is the main cemetery in Tehran. It's called Behishte Zahra. That's right. Behishte Zahra. Absolutely. And... You know, there she was in the heat and the dust and the grief and the tears. And you just watched it and you said, well, for how much longer will Iranians be going through this? I mean, and so her, her grief really just singed me, and as it has many others. And that, that was the sort of um, charge that, that um, led to the story. And at the end of your book... Um, because your your comic, Zahra's Paradise, is now in book form. Um, at the end of your book, you have over 16,000 names of people who have died. Can you tell us about those names? For sure. So Zahra's Paradise is fiction, and yet it's anchored in reality. And so over the years, I've been following the work of an Iranian human rights organization called the Boroman Foundation. Uh, it's uh, basically a foundation that has been documenting human rights violations in Iran since 1979. And as we came to, to the end of the book, I kept on feeling that mm, there's something missing. There, I need to do something more. And so I contacted the Boroman Foundation and said to them, this is where the work is going. And I would very much like to ground it in reality of your work. And they were very, very kind. And so they shared with me a database of 16,901 names, which they've basically followed in newspapers, reports, Human Rights Watch, all, all kinds of sources compiled them. So there are 16,901 people who have either gone missing, killed, you know, and that's a staggering number. Since um, when? We, when? Give since us the time 1979. Frame. Mm -hmm. It's not the total by any means. No, so the, it isn't. the total is actually significantly larger. It's Indeed. the total that one human rights organization mm -hmm. has been able to document. And part of my goal with this book is actually um, there are a bunch of goals, but one of them is to honor the work human rights activists have been doing, especially with regards to Iran. And the Boroman Foundation is one human rights organization. There's been Human Rights Watch, which which has been doing fantastic reports, Amnesty International, United for Iran. So all these, uh, uh, the Federation for Human Rights in France, so all these groups have been pushing the human rights thing. And I thought, okay, 
let's use a story to strengthen their work mm -hmm. and also to draw on it. Well, I mean, that brings up an interesting uh, issue. I mean, are you worried that your political cartoon, because that's what it is, um, will be used or taken advantage of by human rights groups, which many Iranians are skeptical of because of their ties to the U.S. government? Because it seems like that, that would be... That's a great point. And um, thank you for bringing it up because obviously there's always that concern, whether it's human rights, women's rights, all these sort of universal values and goals. When organizations from outside Iran are espousing them, they're always open to the charge that they're agents of imperialism and so forth. But really, when you look at it in totality, which is what I've tried to do, this goes well beyond the U.S. It's actually about Iran. And uh, Zahra's Paradise, when you look at the panels, uh, I tell people, and Khalil, my co-author on this, also tells them that really the authors of it are the Iranian people because we didn't make the three million people go out in Iran. We didn't invent Kahrizak. We didn't invent Evin prison. Evin has been there all along. And all Iranians inside and outside Iran know about it. The CIA, I don't know, the Zionists, all these sort of boogeymen of the Islamic Republic. At a certain point, you can't always put the blame on others, on outsiders. At a certain point, we as Iranians, as Iranian-Americans, have to assume this responsibility as ours. So just as we embrace Hafez as an expression of our culture. The ancient poet. The ancient poet, yes, thank you. Uh, just as we, Hafez, Rumi, Ferdowsi, these epic geniuses that are ours. Evin is also ours. And the children who are there being tortured, the women who, the human rights lawyers and so on, they're ours too. And so for me as an Iranian-American, it's I have a responsibility towards them. And if the people think I'm, you know, doing this for the United States or Israel, it's, they can think that. I'm doing this out of a love for Iran and the Iranian people and the struggle that's taking place there. And, and it's partner, interesting. It's interesting about your book because it's really quite balanced, mm. um, as opposed to many of the human rights groups that, that Iranians are skeptical of. Your book takes many sides to issues. I want to just give an example of that. You describe in your book the uh, Nobel laureate Shirin Ebadi, uh, the, the lawyer, um, as, quote, the human rights lawyer who won a Nobel for never winning a case. That's not something we hear about her very much. Um, you made it very balanced. How did you manage to do that? Well, you know, Iran is full of contradictions. I think, I think if you love Iran, you have to embrace all its contradictions. I think even when you look at any human being, you know, we ha all have a touch of the prophet and the priest and the poet, but then we also have a touch of the thief and the pirate and all of those things. And as a writer, as opposed to an ideologue, it's the spectrum of human emotion that appeals to me. And this is maybe a bit of a confession. I also don't like coming down with the ultimate, more, waving that morality finger in the sky, because I think judgment freezes us sometimes. It's not that I don't condemn, you know, murder and rape and all of these things. But I do think that it's important to leave space for change, to allow for space and change. And if you only see the darkness in people and not the good in them, 
you lose something in that process. And I think part of Zahra's Paradise, part of its fun, is to show that there's a touch of good in the evil and there's a touch of the evil in the good. And we've got to figure our way through this as, uh, as you know. That's part of the joy of writing, right? There's a section in your book, one of the chapters, that's horrifyingly graphic. Mm. I think you know which section I'm talking about. It's it's so disturbing, and it's mm. and it's just a cartoon. Mm-hmm. It's not a real person, but we know that it happened to a lot of real people. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the rape. Mm-hmm. How could you write that? How did you do that? It must have been so emotionally draining. Because mm-hmm. as someone who reads it, it's it's so disturbing. It is. It's very hard, and you know, it's. I think it's it's um, something all Iranians. I think all of us. When we're aware that there is a prison and there are reports of rapes and things, and these things have been going on forever. I mean, you remember that earlier earlier in Iran when virgins were taken to prison and they were going to be executed, they would often be raped before their execution, supposedly married, because if they were virgins, they would, would you know, they wanted them to go to hell. Because a virgin can't go to heaven, to yeah, hell. Sorry. Yes. So, so I think, all of us in our subconscious, at least, live with this knowledge. And any Iranian walking the streets of Tehran can get abducted and end up in a prison, and God knows what's going to happen to them. So it's real. It's real. And we can either choose to see it in all its horror and difficulty, or we can choose to ignore it. I choose to see it and speak it and make it my own. Um, because I don't know what else to do, to be honest with you. I can't, I'm not very good at, I think different people have different skills. I'm not very good at building up walls and ignoring it. But you're right, it's very hard. Khalil, who is the illustrator, um, and much more than the illustrator, really the co-author. I mean, we've created this together out of a lot of pain, actually. There were some scenes when he would be drawing them that afterwards he wouldn't be able to eat you know, and it's not because it's graphic. It's because you, in order to produce something, present something, you have to make it your own as a writer, even as it's in terms of imagination. And he was doing that day after day. And really, I mean, so many Iranian people, so many Iranians have been living it also day after day and accepting it. I mean, you know, this various student leaders who are now in prison, they've spoken it and they, they, they've gone way beyond what I've done because they not only face it, they put themselves in that position. I mean, so many of them are in this prison now. And if we don't sort of draw our line in the sand, then these, then whoever is, you know, the rapists in these prisons will think that they can get away with it. And part of the message is no. What you do has consequences. It will be seen and the world will react to it. So again, it's out of that faith in the world, if you will, that I try to bring some of these things out. Does any of this story of Mehdi or his family have a personal connection for you? Uh, Yeah, it does. Um, In different ways. I think um, it's hard for me to get into it. But yeah, I I, um, lost uh, somebody that I cared a great deal about. And I think the grief informed some of the work. 
And a lot of the people that I truly care about have been deeply wounded by all that goes on in Evian prison. So, yeah, it's personal. Couldn't be anything else. <laughs> it's it's hard these days to find any Iranian family that hasn't had someone mm-hmm. in Evian. Yeah. I mean, you think about it, it's... We've become strangers and criminals in our own country. We are asked to be live in fear of our own shadow. We're asked to humble ourselves and be humiliated every day out of the risk of whatever may come at us. And I think the 2009 protests were millions of people saying enough. It's not just about where is my vote. It's about, you know, it's about dignity. Where am I? Where am I? <laughs> yeah, I count. And it's their dignity and sense of justice that that uh, Khalil and I both feel has not only moved Iran, it's actually moved, you know, the ripple effects have gone from Iran to Tunisia, to Egypt, to Syria, and well beyond. I mean, we, we're seeing protests, young people protesting all over the world. And that's an awakening that's come from Iran and from the Iranian people because, I mean, let's face it, we are a nation of rebels, Right? We don't like being told what to do. Indeed. So, so. <laughs> It's well known about Iranians. The, the book is so, so much of a love letter to the Iranian people. Mm. It's hard to escape that when, when someone is reading your book, that whoever wrote and drew this. And it's interesting because Khalil, your artist and co-author, is, is not Iranian. Uh, but it's so much of a love letter to the Iranian people, to the history of their 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 struggles and and the history of their of their happinesses mm-hmm. as well. But there's some place in the book where you mention you say, "quote Let somebody else save this cursed country." Mm. That's an attitude that a lot of Iranians take, and perhaps even a lot of Iranian Americans specifically. Yeah, I think the beauty of being a writer is that you don't you're not a politician. Right. If you're a politician, you can't say let somebody else save this cursed country. But sometimes, you know, when you say something like that, it's actually out of love. It's not. It's out of. It's like, God, what does it take for this for Iran to move? What does it take? And I think all of us have that sense of frustration. It's like, why should I bear the burden? Why should I assume the liability? I'll just leave Iran, go to L.A have a cool life, have my pina colada, go to the beach, drive a Porsche, and forget Iran. I can't do that for whatever reason. I just can't. I got too much love from Iran and the Iranian. I mean, the Iranian people are beautiful. I mean, we shouldn't forget that. They're so generous. They're so hospitable. They're, you know, I mean, you look, at the, you look at the American hikers who were just released from Iran in prison. You know, the guys just crossed into Iran and they end up in prison. In Evin. In Evin prison, right? The Iran I knew, I knew, the Iran I know, the Iran I believe in, it's an Iran where a foreigner could get lost in and house after house would be open to them. And people would serve them food, they would buy them tickets, they would go into, they would do everything for their guests. That's Iranians for you. And so I just can't stop loving that, you know. Um, I just think we've got to take care of our of our mess. It's ours. Nobody else's. It's ours. Let's take it on. And it you looks know? like the Iranian people are taking it on Big inside time. and outside the country. Big time. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, Amir. Appreciate Thank you. It. It's my pleasure. Amir is the author of the graphic novel Zahra's Paradise about the June 2009 Iranian presidential elections. 
listening to New America Now, Dispatches from the New Majority on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco. I'm Shireen Sadegi. For more stories, visit us on the web at newamericanow.org. about Agent Orange. Some of us have even seen the pictures of what it's done. But most of us have very little understanding of how it came to be used in Vietnam and how it is still hurting people and the environment to this day. Fred Wilcox has spent decades researching the history and impact of Agent Orange on American veterans and Vietnamese people and their land. His new book is called Scorched Earth, Legacies of Chemical Warfare in Vietnam. Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Fred, before we get into your book, uh, I'd like you to tell us what Agent Orange is. Um, We've heard about it, we hear about it, but most people don't know much about it. Yeah, well, Agent Orange was really just a combination of two commercial herbicides. Uh, They're generally called 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T. They have longer names, but that's generally what they're called. And the reason why it was called Agent Orange it was stored in a 55-gallon barrel with an orange stripe around it. And there were other kinds of herbicides uh, used in Vietnam, Agent Pink, Agent White, Agent Blue, and they were all called uh, you know, by those colors because they, uh, the military painted a stripe around the barrels according to what was in the barrel, what kind of chemicals were in the barrel. So why was Agent Orange used in Vietnam? Well, it was used because early on, around uh, 1961, the military started experimenting with uh, herbicides. They wanted to kill the triple canopy jungle in the mangrove forest, and they wanted to do that because they believed that by killing these forests, killing the jungles, then they would drive the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese soldiers out into the open uh, where the United States military's superior firepower could kill them, and uh, the war would be over. Uh, Agent Orange was uh, used because they'd been experimenting with other types of herbicides, and it uh, turned out to just be the most powerful uh, herbicide. It uh, it would kill uh, large trees, uh, you know, with with broad leaves, uh, real fast. It would just uh, turn in whole areas into uh, dead zones. And it it did end up killing things, many things, not oh, yeah. just plants. Oh, yeah, very good at killing things. Veterans who were there would tell you that they would they would be walking through a jungle, triple canopy jungle, you know, uh, with birds, uh, animals, all sorts of you know, the loud noises that we hear in jungles. And after those jungles were sprayed, when the C-123s uh, came over and sprayed these jungles, everything died. Uh, the birds fell out of the trees, the monkeys fell out of uh, their trees, uh, everything died. And with a very short time, within a very short time, matter, a matter of days, uh, these areas that once had been vibrant, thick, deep uh, jungles would be dead, completely dead. Uh, so Agent Orange was a powerful herbicide. Sometimes the uh, military had to spray some of the jungles, uh, you know, more than once uh, to kill them completely. But uh, it was a very, very powerful and did the job of destroying the jungle. It did not actually drive the enemy into the open, uh, you know, like we thought it would, or the military thought it would. The other thing that uh, these herbicides were used for, uh, and that people should 
No, is it, they didn't just kill trees, they killed crops, and they killed uh, crops deliberately. They killed food crops deliberately because at some point the United States military must have realized that the uh, Vietnamese people were, in fact, the Viet Cong. They were supporting the Viet Cong, and they were. So uh, they had to kill their food in order to drive the uh, enemy away. They, they were thinking that if uh, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese didn't have any food, then they would get hungry and they would lose their uh, will to fight. Uh, but what happened is they were actually killing, destroying civilian food, which is a war crime. You're not supposed to do that in a time of war. You're not supposed to kill, uh, destroy civilian food crops. I want to talk a little bit more about um, the effect that it had on Vietnam, its environment, and its people. But uh, I do want you to uh, remind our listeners, as you, as you have done in your in your book, that Agent Orange also impacted American soldiers and, and veterans as they are today. Can you tell us more about that? Well, veterans came home. You know, these, these guys went over there. They were in perfect shape. Most, a lot of more working-class young men. And, and they, they, you know, they played football. They played sports. They were absolutely cream of American youth. So they went to Vietnam and uh, came home. Uh, and early on, just within a few years, some of them started to complain of all sorts of illnesses, uh, uh, urinating blood, heart problems, stomach problems. They would go to the Veterans Administration hospitals, and those hospitals would tell them that they were crazy. They would say, uh, well, you know, you're an alcoholic. And the guy would say, but I don't drink. Uh, or you're a drug addict. And, and the veteran would say, but I don't do drugs. And so basically there was a, there was a policy uh, at the Veterans Administration uh, hospitals to deny that these veterans were exposed to Agent Orange, and if they had been exposed to Agent Orange, that there was any correlation between their illnesses. That went on for many, many, many years. Uh, I, I, I have no idea, I don't think anybody does, how many veterans died uh, in, after they came home from Vietnam because they didn't get the proper treatment uh, at the hospitals. Why was it of any interest to the Veterans Administration or the U.S. government to uh, insist on denying the role that Agent Orange played in the health of these American soldiers? Well, my view is uh, that uh, the government knew that it, they had been engaged in uh, a, a criminal activity. It was a war crime. It was a violation of 1925 Geneva Accords that we should not have used as herbicide. So there was a conspiracy, and I, I say that because um, it has been proven at this point. I used to talk to veterans all the time, and they'd, I'd say, what do you think the veterans uh, administrate? What's the government doing? And they would say, well, they're just waiting for us all to die. And it turns out the veterans were right. It turns out uh, during the Reagan administration, for example, that people were on certain panels and certain groups uh, supposedly working for the vets, supposedly trying to find out, in fact, whether Agent Orange really did uh, harm them. And uh, they were involved in a conspiracy of silence, a conspiracy of stonewalling, uh, doing everything in their power to deny uh, what the veterans were saying. They would say things like, well, you don't know where you were, or nobody knows where these veterans were. Well, they did. I talked to them. They knew exactly where they'd been. They knew exactly how how they'd been exposed to Agent Orange. So how the Veterans Administration or the Department of Defense could say to these young men, uh, well, you don't know where you were, you don't know how you were exposed, and therefore, if you don't know where you were, we don't know where you were, and we can't compensate you for something that you probably weren't exposed to. It's bizarre. It's a very bizarre tale, believe me. If you're, The more you read about it, the more, uh, I think, you'll, strange you'll find it. Well, how far back did the uh, U.S. government, the Department of Defense, know about this? Because President Kennedy was the first president to make the decision to, uh, to use 
herbicides in in Vietnam, and then Presidents Johnson and Nixon followed. And these are all presidents who witnessed the the devastation of extreme warfare as it played out in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It, it, did they know? Did Kennedy know when he made this decision and continued to make this decision? Well, you know, it, in the early part of uh, Scorched Earth, uh, I talked about Kennedy meeting with a group of people. Uh, I don't know what uh, John uh, F. Kennedy knew. I do think that some of the people around him uh, knew something. I, I don't think they knew everything about, you know, they didn't know everything about dioxin, which is a contaminant in Agent Orange. Uh, but they did know, because they had some conversations about it, that this was, uh, what they were doing was, in terms of international law, was kind of uh, questionable. In other words, uh, there were conversations about, well, what, what will the Swedes think of us, you know? Uh, but basically, Kennedy's advisors uh, reassured him and said, well, uh, it, this will be okay. You know, it's okay if we use these chemicals. I, I don't think Kennedy knew a whole lot about them. The chemical companies, the manufacturers uh, of these uh, chemicals, Agent Orange, uh, have always said that the government knew uh, what was in the chemicals, and, and uh, it was their fault because they, they knew. I don't think so. I, I don't think there's any real evidence that the government knew anything, and certainly commanders in the field, uh, those commanders just wanted to save their troops' lives. They wanted to end the war. They wanted to defeat the enemy. They could not have known uh, that Agent Orange contained something called dioxin that's carcinogenic, uh, possibly mutagenic, and a very dangerous chemical that no one should ever be exposed to. Uh, they, they couldn't have known that. They just couldn't have. During your research for uh, this book in Vietnam, you were taken to what you refer to in the book as, quote, a locked chamber of horrors in the children's right. ward of Tudu Hospital in Ho Chi Minh City. Can you tell us what mm-hmm. you saw there? Well, what I saw there, there are shelves full of jars, uh, great big jars, and inside of these jars are floating uh, uh, monsters, really. I, I don't mean to be pejorative about the, these uh, poor little dead babies, but that's what they are. The monsters, they're, uh, they're fetuses uh, that were born with missing heads, missing arms, Siamese twins uh, sort of fused together. Uh, there's just a shelf after shelf of those, and those are there because a, a doctor by the name of Dr. Fong, when she was a young woman, 1967, in Saigon, she delivered a baby, uh, the first Agent Orange baby, at least that she saw. She didn't know it was an Agent Orange baby, but it was just so horribly deformed that she couldn't show it to the mother. She was afraid that the mother would just collapse, you know, and have a breakdown if she saw this terribly deformed child. And so Dr. Fong started trying to tell people, and the more she learned about what was going on in the countryside with Agent Orange, the more she was convinced that these babies that were being born in Tudu's hospital uh, were probably the uh, product of, uh, of a woman who was exposed to Agent Orange. And uh, and so she decided to keep these uh, fetuses, and that's what she did, and that's the, the room of horrors. They will take you there, and it's it's absolutely, uh, well, it's quite horrifying. It's shocking. Uh, it's one of the most shocking uh, things I've ever seen in my life. But I also call it the evidence room, because I think that if you're skeptical, if you don't believe that uh, dioxin harms uh, human fetuses, uh, if you don't believe that these Vietnamese women and what, they're, what they were trying to tell the United States and what they're still trying to tell us is uh, that these babies are being born with these serious birth defects. And just go to that hospital and go to that room, and I don't think you'll have any doubt uh, that what I and other people have been saying, what the Vietnamese have been saying for years and years is, is true. Your son, Brendan Wilcox, accompanied you uh, on your trip to Vietnam for this book and took pictures of those jars 
that you just mentioned. Why did you include those pictures in your book? Well, because uh, I think they are, like I said, I think they are the evidence. Um, Dr. Fong worked in that hospital for years and years and years, and she kept seeing more and more of these babies being born uh, that are just, uh, you know, uh, they, they weren't really babies. They were just the most misshapen, misformed, and most horrible masses of uh, flesh and bone you could ever imagine. Uh, so I wanted people to see... Dr. Fong's evidence. I wanted to, uh, people to see that, in fact, these poor Vietnamese women have been giving birth uh, for a very, very long time uh, to these uh, kind of uh, monster-like fetuses. And and what it would be like, I mean, uh, try to imagine giving birth to something like that. How would you feel? You know, how shocked would you be? How horrified you would be? And also, I think that, that those bottles uh, are similar in, in ways to laboratory animals that have been exposed to dioxin, TCDD dioxin. Uh, their fetuses are born with missing eyes, uh, missing brains, missing arms and legs. So when you take the laboratory evidence from uh, animals, you know, mice and rats and other animals, and then compare it to those jars, I think you'll see a, a great similarities. Fred, you've spent years writing on the effects of chemical warfare and specifically Agent Orange in Vietnam. Why are you so interested in this subject that you would basically dedicate a lifetime of research to it? Uh, yeah, well, many reasons. One, uh, I, when I, once I started working on this, I, I met uh, Vietnam veterans, and I, I, I grew to like them a great deal. You know, uh, everybody uh, had been talking about, well, the horrors of Vietnam and My Lai and massacres, and I found out that these guys were just uh, very ordinary, uh, very nice uh, people who had gone through a terrible, terrible uh, situation in Vietnam. And so I felt like, uh, as an American citizen, uh, first of all, and as just a human being, I owed something to them. I wanted to ch- see if I couldn't help them. Uh, second of all, the more uh, research I've done into the effects of Agent Orange and the Vietnamese people and our own vets and Korean vets, Australian vets, and the more convinced I am uh, that we, our environment is inundated with dioxin, and we have a cancer epidemic in this country. So I think the story of Agent Orange is really, really exactly what's going on in this country now. That is to say that we virtually have uh, over 40% of the American males will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. Something like 40% of women will be diagnosed with cancer. A vast escalation of certain kinds of cancer over the last 20 years in children. We have this epidemic, and an epidemic uh, directly related to the destruction of our environment, that, that is the poisoning of our environment, our water and our air and food supply with, with chemicals like dioxin. So I want people to look at what's happened to the Vietnam veterans and the Vietnamese and then to realize that uh, the same thing is happening drastically if we simply demand, you know, that these chemical companies and the government uh, stop poisoning our environment and stop poisoning us. Fred Wilcox, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your new book, Scorched Earth. Uh, Thank you very much for talking with me. I've enjoyed it a lot. Fred Wilcox is an associate professor of writing at Ithaca College in New York. His new book is called Scorched Earth, Legacies of Chemical Warfare in Vietnam. This is New America Now. I'm Shireen Sadegi. Friend us on Facebook. Just search for New America Now Radio.
about it, people are all the same. We all want some clothes on our back, food on the table, a roof over our heads, and, well, something to laugh at. And so it goes for a little boy growing up in Pakistan. Kumail Nanjiani is an immigrant to the United States. He arrived when he was 18 years old. But today, he is laughing it up with the best of America's comedians. He'll be performing at the Punchline Comedy Club in San Francisco this weekend, and he joins us today to shed light on life for a Pakistani-American comedian. Welcome to the show, Kumail. Hi, thanks for having me. So tell us about Kumail Nanjiani. Who is he? Oh, man, I don't... I'm trying to figure that out. Uh, I guess the basics would be that I was born in Pakistan, and then I moved to the U.S. when I was 18, went to Iowa... Spent four years there, and then I've sort of been all over the country since then. Why did your voice go down when you said Iowa? Is there a big contrast between Iowa and Karachi? <laughs> yeah, I don't think you could find a bigger contrast. I mean, you know, Karachi is sort of an urban jungle. Like it's it's actually pretty similar to New York. It's very loud and it's dirty and it's smoky and it's hot and millions of people. And then I went to Iowa, and it's millions of pigs and a lot of corn, and just open fields. I can't imagine two more different cities. I mean, places I was not a city. How did you get into stand-up comedy? Because it's, it's not exactly the kind of profession that Pakistani parents encourage in their children, is it? No, and mine certainly did not. Um, you know, honestly, I was, it was senior year in college, and I was going through this crisis. I had no idea what I was going to do. I was a computer science major and a philosophy major, and one I was really bad at, and one wasn't really going to get me a job. So what I decided to do was I moved to Chicago. I decided to uh, sort of get a job using my computer science degree. But that wasn't really satisfying. So uh, a lot of my friends had told me I should try stand-up. Um, and I'd never really watched much stand-up growing up. Like, we didn't really have much stand-up in Pakistan. So for one year, I basically watched almost every single stand-up special ever shown in the U.S., and I uh, started doing stand-up right after that. I just wanted to try and see if, if it was fun or if I'd be good at it. You know, it was one of those things where I tried it once, and it just sort of went from there. What's the hardest thing about being a Pakistani-American comedian? You know, in the beginning, it was difficult, because I did start not too long after 9-11, so people sort of assumed that I, there would be certain kinds of topics that I'd be talking about. And um, right then, right around then, there were a lot of sort of people from that part of the world who tried comedy. Uh, a lot of uh, Middle Eastern comedians had sort of gotten a lot of notoriety pretty quickly. Um, so I think the hardest thing for me back then was to sort of not talk about the things that they wanted me talk to talk about and rather do the jokes I wanted to tell. So in the beginning, that was my biggest challenge, was that people assumed I would sort of be playing off of stereotypes, when really I was just sort of telling personal stories and things like that. So in the beginning, that was the biggest challenge. But right now, um, I feel like we're in sort of a different time where people do accept uh, people from my part of the world without having to, you know, resort to hitting certain topics all the time. Well, well what are the topics that, that you... Um would like to talk about that maybe wasn't expected of you early on? Well, you know, in the beginning, I, I talked a lot about, like, movies and video games and TV shows I liked and stuff like that. It just wasn't specifically about me being from that part of the world. And what happened was I didn't want to talk specifically about stuff 
uh, based on where I was from, because there were a lot of comedians who were doing um, stuff playing off of stereotypes, you know, jokes about driving cabs or 7-Eleven or, or even 9-Eleven. And I didn't want to talk about that. I just And in the beginning, it was almost this thing where I wouldn't talk about that stuff almost to defy the audience's expectations, you know. So for, for the first two or three years, I never, never mentioned where I was from. And then a few years in, I sort of realized that there was a, was a big part of me that I wasn't talking about on stage. I mean, you know, being from Pakistan and sort of being raised Muslim and everything is a very, very important part of my life. And I wasn't really talking about it on stage. I was ignoring a big part of my life. So what I decided to do was I decided to write a, a one-hour, one-man show that sort of dealt with me growing up Muslim and then coming to the U.S. It was basically all the stuff that I said I wouldn't talk about in stand-up. But instead, uh, I talked about it in this one-man show, but I talked about it in a very personal way and not really playing off of stereotypes or anything like that. I just wanted to talk about these things on my own terms. What's interesting about you, Camille, is that unlike many of the South Asian American comedians and Middle Eastern American comedians, the sort of the new crop of comedians that came out after 9-11, as you referenced, you have an accent. You do not speak American as as someone who was born and raised here. No, no, I don't. And I've sort of, I think I went to British schooling when I was a kid, so there's some of that too. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes people actually, this really bugs me. I decided to stop reading YouTube comments because people would be like, oh, he's putting on a fake accent. I'm like, oh my God, if I could get rid of it, I totally would. Why would you want to get rid of your accent? I'm it's joking, part of who I you wouldn't. are. Yeah, no, I, I really wouldn't want to. I mean, part of the one thing I have, I am sort of sad about is that I haven't really visited Pakistan in about 13 years, and uh, my Pakistani accent is a lot weaker than it used to be, and I'm sort of sad about that. I, I wish I could really hold on to it, you know. It's fading away. Well, speaking of YouTube and social networking, you have quite a presence on Twitter, yeah, I love Twitter almost too much. I just made a rule, actually starting today, that for four hours every day I wouldn't look at anything on the internet, and I would uh, hide my phone. Well, I want to I want to draw the uh, the listeners' attention to the kind of things the kinds of things that Kumail Nanjiani tweets because I think it it gives a good idea of what your humor is like. You tweeted recently after the Nancy Grace nipple slip on Dancing with the Stars that, quote, scientists find particle that travels faster than light. It's the human face grimacing, turning away right after seeing Nancy Grace's nipple. Yep, that's a kind of a mean one. Can you elaborate on your Twitter presence? Who is Kumail Nanjiani on Twitter? You know, what I try and ultimately, for a comedian, the reason that Twitter is so good is that you can directly reach a lot of people who would potentially come to your shows and you know you don't have to go through other avenues to do it you can directly reach them so what i try and use it for is i try and do promotion but not much i try and sort of write as many jokes as i can and send it out or just stuff that's interesting to me if there's a song i like or or a movie i saw that i like i try and i try and put that out there then every now and then promote myself you sort of think of it as commercials during a tv show you know where uh, you sort of the, the show earns the right to show you like two minutes of commercials every five minutes. So that's how I kind of try and approach Twitter. Is it is that kind of the Hollywood way of being a comedian today that, you know, your agent or your publicist says, hey, Kumail, you didn't tweet enough today? 
Oh, no, not at all. My agents and my managers are not <laughs> involved in my Twitter life at all. It's just, I just sort of realized that it's very easy to have a conversation with people who like your comedy right now. You know, I mean, 20 years ago, it was very, very difficult. But right now, you can actually have a dialogue with people. You know, I, I just did a bunch of shows in Austin this past weekend, and people from those shows tweeted at me, and I can tweet them back. And it just sort of, I think, helps me stay connected to the people who come to my shows, and I think it helps them stay connected to me. Because in the past, it used to be people on TV were so disconnected from their audience and right now, I think a lot of people realize it's like, oh, these are just people, and I can talk to them, and they'll respond to me. Well, speaking of people who think you're funny, New York Magazine included you in their list of 10 comedians that funny people find funny. Why do you think your fellow comedians have made that connection with you? Um, I think, honestly, part of it in the beginning was that I was a Pakistani comedian who wasn't sort of doing the stereotypical stuff a lot. But I think what people right now really respond to is sort of personal comedy. People really like personal stories. So if you think of somebody like Louis C.K., who I think, you know, maybe the best comedian right now. And uh, that's really the kind of comedy that I wanted to do from the beginning. Right when I moved to New York, I just wanted to tell sort of personal stories and things that happened to me and my opinion of things and things like that. And I think what, what people are realizing is that if you're true to yourself as a person doing comedy, then there's really nobody else like you because we're all different people, you know. So I think that's maybe what people were responding to was that I just kind of wanted to tell stories. And I had a perspective that not many people have, somebody growing up in Pakistan, coming here, getting pretty assimilated into the American culture. I could sort of act as a bridge between here and there, you know. Thank you so much for joining us today, Camille. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to New America Now, dispatches from the new majority. Inter-ethnic, international, and intergenerational news for the new America. If you'd like to hear more from any of our guests today or subscribe to a podcast of our program, go to newamericanow.org. New America Now is produced at the KALW Studios in San Francisco by New America Media. Thanks for joining us. I'm Shireen Sadegi.